David now employs one of the oldest military tactics to gain the upper hand against the rebel Absalom. This is the 36th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. A roll cover reading coming from 2 Samuel and chapter 16. 2 Samuel and chapter 16, beginning in verse 15, beginning in verse 15 to the end of the chapter, verse 23. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, as Absalom seeks to rule in Jerusalem, the prophet records this. And Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And it came to pass, when Hushai the Archite, David's friend, was come unto Absalom, that Hushai said unto Absalom, God save the king! God save the king! And Absalom said unto Hushai, Is this thy kindness to thy friend? Why wentest thou not with thy friend? And Hushai said unto Absalom, Nay, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, this will I be, and with him will I abide. And again, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in thy father's presence, so will I be in thy presence. Then said Absalom to Ahithophel, Give counsel among you what we shall do. And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Go in unto thy father's concubines, which he had left to keep the house, and all Israel shall hear that thou art a port of thy father. Then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house. And Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. By the same spirit, the apostle James, in James in chapter 1, beginning in verse 13 through verse 15, the apostle says this, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And once again, the gospel is presented to us this day. And one has to stand absolutely amazed at the intrigue surrounding these historical events of David and Absalom. Whenever there are life and death situations, there is always intrigue, especially when it comes to national situations where the future of entire nations are held in the balance. Such was the case of Israel with David's situation. Now, in order to gain advantage over one's enemies, one must be very contemplated and one must be very cunning and very crafty. One of the components of a successful campaign of statecraft is the effective execution of what I call spycraft. The scriptures speak much about the strategy and effectiveness of of spycraft, of spying. Now, God initially introduced us to the effectiveness of spying in Genesis chapter 42 when Joseph 
accuses his own brethren of spying upon the land. Obviously, the strategy of sending out spies was well known. And if we are to define spying, we might say that ordinarily, spying is used to observe something secretly, usually for hostile purposes. And this was the intent of Joseph's accusation, that his brothers were actually secretly looking at the land in order to do it harm or to confiscate it for themselves. So he accuses them of spying. The next time we are introduced to spying is when Moses sent out certain men to spy out the land. In other words, they were to go out there secretly, clandestinely, in in a stealthy kind of a way, to spy out the land. And we see this in Numbers chapter 13, verse 16 and 17. These are the names of the men which Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Oshi, the son of Nun, Yeshua, and Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said unto them, Get you up this way southward and go up into the mountains. So he was calling them to spy out the land. According to Numbers 21, this was a very effective strategy, a very effective method to gain advantage over an enemy. So whenever the spies were sent out, they were there to gain an advantage over the enemy. And it would do us well to recognize how effective the intel gathering is, especially in the postmodern Christian era that we face now, where we find ourselves today, if we are to take back the land for the glory of God, we need to be very involved in what I call spycraft. Notice Numbers 21, verse 32. And Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they took the villages thereof and drove out the Amorites that were there. Now note here how effective the intel spy gathering was. It it actually preceded the victory. So they send out the spies, and that was the, the cause for their victory, the cause for their conquest. Now once Joshua is given the headship over Israel, he remembered the strategy that Moses was taught of by God. He remembered Moses' strategy, and he too began using spies for Israel's advantage. And we read this in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly. Notice the secretness, the the clandestine, the stealthiness. To spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even unto Jericho. And they went and came into an harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. They were the spies. So spycraft was even popular, not only during the days of Joshua, but among even the children of Dan, and we read this in Judges 18, chapter 2 and following, and the children of Dan sent of their family five men from their coast, men of valor, from Zoah and from Eschatol, to spy out the land and to search it out. And they said unto them, Go search the land, who when they came to Mount Ephraim, to the house of Micah, they lodged there. So here again, we have the methodology, the strategy, the tactic of gaining intelligence, of spying. According to Second Samuel chapter 10, there seems to be a real sensitivity to the strategy of spying, since the king of, 
of Ammon misreads David's honorable intentions and claims that he only sent his emissaries when he didn't. He sent them out in good goodwill. But he was curious. Why were those emissaries sent? He thought they were sent to spy out the nation of Ammon in order to overthrow it because that's what they usually do. They would spy out the land in order to be victorious over it. And we read this in Second Samuel chapter 10, verse 3. And the princes of the children of Ammon said... Unto Hanan, their lord, thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father, that he had sent comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? Because that's what spying was all about. You'd gain intel, you'd gain access, you'd get undercover in order to overturn, to subdue, to take over, to conquer, to be victorious. Now, spying was not only a tactic of the Hebrews. Even the king of Syria used it against God's people and especially against the prophet Elisha as we read in 2 Kings chapter 6. In 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, we read this. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled. And he called his servants and said unto them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. So obviously he had some spies there. And he said, Go and spy where he is, so that I may send and fetch him. And of course his intentions were ill. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city round about. So the spying was very, very important. It was an integral part of this warfare. Spying was even common during the early church days. Paul himself, the Apostle Paul himself, accuses some of the false brethren of spying on the Christian community concerning the liberty that they had in Christ from the ceremonial observances. Notice in Galatians chapter 2 verse 4. And that because of false brethren, unawares brought in, in other words, they were coming in secretly, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Notice what he's saying. Paul is saying that the goal of these spies was to bring them into bondage or to subdue them or subvert them. So spying is one of the most, if not the most, important aspects of national security and warfare success. Intel gathering is essential for victory. Therefore, we should never consider spying as unimportant or simply an incidental addition to national security or the security of Christendom itself or the security of the kingdom of God itself. It can mean the preservation or the destruction of entire nations. Now, to consider a breach in national security from a successful spying campaign as insignificant shows a complete incompetence from a nation's leadership. A nation's secrets are the lifeblood of the nation's safety and the safety of its people. And David understood that. David understood the power of spycraft and he was very adept at executing it. The first thing David had to consider before employing anyone to be a spy 
as he employs Hushai, is the person's commitment to the cause. What was the person's commitment? If you're going to employ a spy, you have to understand who they are. You have to vet them very carefully. And David understood that. So the first thing that he had to consider before employing anyone to be his spy is the person's commitment to the cause. The spy, in other words, had to be fully convinced that the cause of the king and the cause of the nation and the cause of the kingdom was just. In the general case of spycraft, the spy had to be convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the spying was for the good of the state and the good of the nation and the welfare of the people. But spying is all about lying. It's all about deceiving. It traffics in misinformation. It traffics in manipulation and the reinterpretation of reality. So the spy must be a master deceiver. If he does not present himself as genuine, if he goes into the enemy's camp and the enemy is concerned that he may not be genuine, it could cost him his life. And so whenever employing a spy, an intel gatherer, one must be very careful not to employ someone who is spying on you in the first place, and we call that individual a double agent. So spying can be a very, very dangerous business. Hushai was going into the enemy camp and it was dangerous. For David to execute a successful spying campaign against Absalom's insurrection, he had to be absolutely sure that the man whom he sent out as a spy was true to the cause of God, the cause of the king, and the cause of the nation of Israel. That man had to be absolutely convinced that Absalom was the enemy. Hushai had to be absolutely convinced and David had to be absolutely convinced that Hushai was absolutely convinced that Absalom was the enemy, that he was the usurper. In order to have some intel within the camp of Absalom, David originally employed Zadok the priest and his sons. But their spying was, was limited it couldn't be as comprehensive as David needed since they were sequestered to temple celebrations and ceremonies. So their, their spying was limited. Legitimate, yes. Powerful, absolutely. But limited, nevertheless. David needed someone in the council chamber of Absalom to move him in the direction that David needed to defeat him. He needed to be right in the middle of the mix right in the enemy's camp. And so, he chooses his trusted friend, Hushai. So what were some of the qualifications needed of this man for David to trust him? Well, first of all, he had to be trustworthy. He had to be a man of his word. But trust could not be attained overnight. You couldn't just meet someone and then, okay, yeah, I think I could trust that person. Everybody's pretty deceptive. Everybody's dubious in, in how they present themselves. There's always optics. But this man, if he was to be trustworthy, that trust could not be attained overnight or over a short period of time. That trust had to be enduring. For trust to be enduring, it had to stand the test of time without a blotch over the years. A history of trust had to be developed over years. And, and you think about Hushai and David. They must have been friends for years. They had a history together. They were in the thick of it. They were in the thick and the thin of it. 
In fact, Absalom, David's son, knew that. That Hushai was David's friend. He identifies Hushai as David's friend. He says, you're his friend. How? What is this all about? Is this a true betrayal? What is this all about? Secondly, Hushai had to be a man of faith. Not only trustworthy, but a man of faith. He had to have a long-standing track record of godly faith, which was evident in all that he did. Not all that he said, but everything that he did, because you will be known by your actions. Talk is cheap. So he had to be a man of faith, and that faith had to be evident, an active, energized faith, Godward. Thirdly, Hushai must have had proven to David that he was a man of courage. This was not a light task. To go in the enemy's camp, this was not a light task. He had to be a man of courage. Spies need to be courageous because if they are found out to be spies, they can be tortured and killed. Fourthly, Hushai had to be a man of resolve. He couldn't begin hot for the cause of Christ. Oh yeah, man, I'm ready to go. And then, yeah, after time, grow cold like so many Christians today. Start out on fire for Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. I want to serve Jesus. I want to go on these missionary trips. I want to do this. And then after years in the trenches, they fall away. And that love that was once burning hot, the fire goes out and it becomes lukewarm. And then entirely cold. I tell this story often, and I'll tell it again. When I was in elementary school, of course, you have that physical education. And at this certain time in our, in our sports agenda, we were going to run a mile. So everyone gets on the, on the starting line and the, the coach blows the whistle and we all start running. And I'm in the front. And I look behind me and the fastest kid in the whole school is behind me. And I'm like, wow, look at me. I'm in the front. Starting out hot, starting out fast. I'm all full of energy, all full of energy. Well, by the time I hit that third lap, <laughs> the first kid in the block was pacing himself and he was way in the front. Doesn't matter how you start, it matters how you end. Hushai was a man of resolve. He had to be a man of committed resolve. He had to be a man of conviction, not persuasion. Because if you're persuaded one way, you could be persuaded another way. But if you're convicted, nothing, nothing in this world will move you from that conviction. He was a man convicted. He was a man convicted that his cause was just and he would stay at it. He would stay the course until his mission was completed or he would die trying. Number five, he also had to be a man of cunning and well prepared for espionage. This means that he was a man who was proven, not a novice, groomed for spycraft and warfare, for that is really what spycraft is. It's the waging of war. Number six, Hushai also had to be observant. He had to understand what he was looking for. He had to know what he was seeing. He had to pay strict attention to the details about the situation that he was thrust into. He couldn't just lollygag. He had to be observant. Also, number seven, he had to be able to read people. He could not afford to be deceived himself. 
He was the deceiver. He needed to keep a watchful eye for those that might try to do to him what he was trying to do to them. Deceive and manipulate. And we're all, all of us are very easily manipulated, so we have to be very, very careful. Number eight, he also needed to be able to articulate whatever battle plan the enemy was ready to employ and then be able to get those details back to King David in time to frustrate those plans. So he had to have a mind like a trap. He had to understand what was happening and he had to be able to articulate it. And finally, and this goes without saying, Hushai had to be committed to the point where he was willing to give his life for the cause if it came to that. Sadly, I don't know that many individuals that call themselves Christians today are even willing to give them the give time to the cause, let alone their lives. And that's just a fact of our age. You know, we, we, we boast ourselves, yeah, I would die for the Lord. But we can't even do things that are just everyday things for the Lord. We've always got an excuse here. We've always got an excuse there. Hushai was ready to die. And that was a real threat. That was a real possibility. If Absalom would have found out, that would have been off with his head. This wasn't the game. Yet today, Christians think, well, we got this is a religious game. We're fighting the enemy. Some days we win. Some days we lose. Some days we eat the bear. Some days the bear eats us. This is real warfare. He was willing to give his life. We don't even want to give our time half the time. <coughs> Half the time, we don't even want to give our time. Now what is interesting here is that in order for Hushai to spy on Absalom, he had to be well integrated into the court of Absalom and gain his trust. He had to go into the lion's den without getting eaten by the lion. However, however this came to be, however this integration happened, the scripture doesn't really tell us. We can only assume, knowing the narcissistic nature of Absalom and the hatred he had for his father, he would have jumped at the chance for Hushai to betray David and pledge allegiance to Absalom's cause of rebellion. God obviously blinded Absalom's eyes to the fact that Hushai was a faithful friend to the end, to the king, a loyal subject to the end, to the king. But because of his narcissism, he said, well, maybe he is really betraying my father. And that leads me to another point. In order for spycraft to be successful, first it has to have God's honor as the cause and the end, and second, God has to prepare the way for its success. God was working behind the scenes here. God was already preparing all of this to come about. The reason why Absalom was unable to understand Hushai's loyalty to David is because Absalom had a loyal bone in his whole body other than loyal to himself. And while he is initially, as we read very carefully, and while he is initially suspicious, Absalom is eventually blinded by his own narcissistic ambitions, and that was all God's doing. Like so many politicians today, legislators and judges and rulers of our day, loyalty to a righteous cause is a thing of the past. What we have today is hypocrisy and outright deception. While these leaders pledge allegiance to loyalty to uh, to the constitution and the rule of law even some professing to be Christians themselves upon entering into their office we find immediately violating their oath affiliating, supporting and legislating according to anti-Christian and often anti-constitutional lawless ideologies 
So it doesn't matter what they say. It matters what they do. Now let's consider in detail the spycraft manipulation of Hushai. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 16, And it came to pass, when Hushai the archite, David's friend, was come unto Absalom, that Hushai said unto Absalom, notice what he says, God save the king! God save the king! That's how he enters into the court. Note the cunning duplicity of Hushai. Hushai addresses Absalom by saying, God save the king. Now this was a proper address, of course, that one would give to the king when standing in his presence. That's what you would say. Otherwise you might get in a little bit of trouble and you might get put in, the, in, in jail or the brink or your head might be taken. What is curious here is who actually is Hushai referring to? Is he saying God save the king Absalom or God save the king David? To be sure, Hushai means David. But by being vague, by intentionally being vague, he lets Absalom think that it is Absalom that he is praising. This was pure manipulation. This was pure spycraft. This was pure deception. And he was he was dealing with the narcissism of Absalom. If he says, God save the king, Absalom thinks he's already the king. He already thinks, it. oh, this is good. I got Hushai and he's praising me. God save the king. That's who I am. Thank you very much. Yet Hushai does not only say, God save the king. He says it twice. He says it twice as if to show his absolute loyalty to the salvation and dominion advancement of the king. But again, he's really talking about David. Knowing that Hushai was originally David's friend, Absalom asks, why would Hushai abandon David and defect to the rebel side? We see this in verse 17. And Absalom said unto Hushai, is this thy kindness to thy friend? Why wentest thou not with thy friend? He's very curious. See, Absalom's no fool. So he asks, why didn't Hushai go along with David if he was indeed his friend? But Absalom's statement, is this thy kindness to thy friend, is just absolutely incredible. Absolutely blind hypocrisy. Absalom is asking Hushai, is this how you treat your friend by betraying him and by defecting to a cause to overthrow his entire kingdom? Does Absalom even hear himself? Does Absalom even hear what he's saying? I wonder sometimes what, what, when we're dealing with some people, do they really know what they're saying? Absalom has just indicted himself since it was he that betrayed David, his own father, the king of Israel, and he sought to overthrow David's entire kingdom. And by his own words, he's condemning himself. Note Hushai's answer, verse 18. And Hushai said unto Absalom, Nay, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his will I be, and with him will I abide. And here again, Hushai is actually referring to David, whom the Lord chose in the beginning when Nathan ordained him along with the entire nation of Israel. Remember, the entire nation of Israel was behind David. Adam Clark agrees. Notice what the commentator says. He says, here is an equivocation. Hushai meant in his heart that God and all the people of Israel had chosen David, but he spake so as to make Absalom believe that he spoke of him. Hushai understood that Absalom was a usurper and did not deserve the kingdom that God had given to David. Absalom is the enemy, and Hushai understood that very, very clearly. Hushai's spycraft is 
admirable. Since the enemy has no right to the truth. Hushai is not going to tell him the truth. Absalom had no right to the truth. Once an enemy sets himself against the Lord and against his anointed in a vicious attempt to overthrow and to destroy that which is right and just, they are no longer entitled to the truth. And this is a fundamental principle of Holy Scripture. As with the case of Rahab and Joshua's spies, Hushai's deception is not condemned. Once an enemy sets itself up against the Lord and against his anointed in a vicious attempt to overthrow and destroy that which is right and just, they are no longer entitled to the truth. As with the case of Rahab and Joshua's spies, Hushai's deception is not condemned. God nowhere is saying, you know, Hushai, you've been, you've been trying to deceive this young man. That was a bad thing. No, never, never said it. In fact, this was the turning point in David's return to the kingdom. If Hushai's deception was condemned, then God would have recorded it as sin, but he doesn't. In fact, it was Hushai's spying that protected David. It was Hushai's spying that eventually restored the kingdom to its rightful king. R.J. Rushduni comments on lying and deception when it is waged as a weapon against an ungodly enemy. Notice what he says. But does God require us to tell the truth at all times? Such a proposition is highly questionable. The commandment is very clear. We are not to bear false witness against our neighbor, but this does not mean that our neighbor or our enemy is even entitled to the truth from us or any word from us about matters of no concern to them or of private nature to us. No enemy or criminal has any right to knowledge from us which can be used to do us evil. No one who is seeking to do us evil to violate the law in reference to us or to another is entitled to the truth, end quote. Even the notable R. L. Dabney agrees. He says, lawless aggression results in a forfeiture of rights of the guilty assailant. So while outright lying is sinful and hateful to God, the scripture gives parameters, clear parameters, where deception is a righteous thing even a lawful commanded response to evil. We don't see the midwives being condemned by God. In fact, they were blessed when they lied to Pharaoh. We don't see any repercussions negatively against Rahab when she lied through her teeth. And yet she was commended. So there are parameters whereby we can righteously deceive the enemies of God. We don't have to tell them anything. Could you imagine during the days of, of Nazi Germany, if you were hiding Jews in the basement and the stormtroopers came in and said, do you have any Jews here? And he turned and said, well, I cannot tell a lie. Yeah, they're downstairs in the basement. I wouldn't want to live in that house. So Hushai needs to convince Absalom that he is on his side as a faithful, loyal subject. The kingdom depended on that. The kingdom depended on that deception. Notice 2 Samuel 16, 18 through 19. And Hushai said unto Absalom, Nay, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his will I be, and with him will I abide. And again, whom shall I serve? 
Should I not serve in the presence of his son as I have served in my thy father's presence? So will I be in thy presence. Now this was a powerful testimony. Hushai's testimony is actually confirming what Absalom already believed in that as the son of David, he was rightfully the heir of the kingdom. Furthermore, from this statement, it now becomes apparent that Hushai was one of David's counselors. That was important to Absalom. He wanted one of David's counselors. To stand in the presence of the king signifies that he had the king's ears. And that's what he was saying to, to Absalom. I was standing in the presence of your father. I was his counselor. I had his ear. He listened to me. And now you have me. In Absalom's mind, to have David's counsel would generate great power. It would guarantee his successful takeover of the kingdom and the continued prosperity of it as well. And that's all he needed to hear. That's all Absalom needed to hear. He had Zadok and his sons ministering at the tabernacle with the ark in order to ensure God's favor. And now he could have the ministry of Hushai, David's faithful counselor, in addition to the counsel of Ahithophel. What more could he ask for? So now in his mind, he thinks that he's got it made. Absalom then asks Ahithophel what his next step should be. Verse 20. Then said Absalom to Ahithophel, Give counsel among you what we shall do. You think as the general of the, of the, of the kingdom, he would even know. But he asks Ahithophel. Now, verse 23 tells us that Ahithophel's counsel when you asked about Ahithophel's counsel, it was as if you were speaking to God himself. It was as if he spoke for God. And David used him often as a counselor. Notice verse 23. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. He's a powerful man. You ask Ahithophel, and the answer is pretty much straight from God. But at this point, Ahithophel is showing great disdain for God's anointed. Great disdain for David. And now, because he so hated David, he would do anything to secure the throne for Absalom. He had already betrayed him, so why not just go on the side of the reprobate? Now, what is interesting here is we don't read anywhere where Absalom is asking God directly for counsel, as so many times David did. David always required, God, what shall I do? What should I do this? What should I do that way? But he goes to his private counselor, a man. Now, one might ask, what exactly was Absalom's relationship to God? I mean, that was my question. When reading this, that's my question. So what we see here is a man with bold and almost blind ambitions who hasn't publicly worshipped. We don't read anywhere he's publicly worshipping. We don't read anywhere he is actually praying or asking any counsel from God directly, as we see with David with his psalms and with his prayers. We see the man, Absalom, who is a murderous man, a vigilante, a disgrace to his father. And so in order to execute his next move, instead of calling on God, he asks Ahithophel for advice. The Reverend Scott comments, he says, 
Ahithophel's counsel was considered as the oracle of God because of his great wisdom. And at one time, his professions of piety seemed to have been equally depended upon. He did not, however, show his wisdom in joining himself to a vile faction headed by a rash young man of consummate villainy which foreboded nothing but ruin. But his confidence in his own wisdom, in Ahithophel's own wisdom, made him presume that he could render Absalom successful. And his mind seemed to have been much embittered against David. His first counsel to Absalom after his peaceable entrance into Jerusalem was like an oracle of Satan, both for subtlety and atrocity. For his own security and that of the whole party, he intended to preclude all hope of reconciliation with David that Absalom might determine to conquer or to perish. And he put him on an act of shameless wickedness. By Ahithophel's advice, Absalom, without expressing the least reluctancy and in defiance of the law of God and even of common decency in the most public manner, lay with his father's concubines, thus inflicting on him the correction that had been denounced. End quote. And so we read in verse 21, And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Go unto thy father's concubines, which he had left to keep the house. And all Israel shall hear that thou art a port of thy father. Then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong. That was his counsel. Now if you remember, David had left some of his concubines behind when he fled to watch over the house. Since they were actually not his wives, perhaps he believed that he really had no covenant obligation to protect them and perhaps they would not be in harm's way, they would be safe if he left them behind. But note the shameless action and the shameless counsel of Ahithophel and the shameless action of the rebel Absalom. Verse 22. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house and Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. It seems at this point that Absalom, because now he's in the court of the king, he's in David's house. He took over the house. David's in exile. Absalom goes up to the very same rooftop where David saw Bathsheba bathing. This is where it all started. And this is the reason for Nathan's curse. God is bringing his hammer of his chastising prophecy upon David in the most ironic fashion, in the most poetic fashion, in order to drive his lesson home that he and all Christendom will never forget this lesson, how sin is an all-consuming, systemic, destructive force. This was the lesson that God is driving home to us and to David. Note sin's corrosive nature. It all began with one act of lawlessness. One act of lawlessness and it metastasized into the destruction of an entire nation and the generational legacy of the family of King David. And by Absalom going into the, to the concubines from the very same, on the very same rooftop where David spied Bathsheba, it's as if God is telling David and the entire nation of Israel that this is where it all began. This is where adultery begets adultery, sin begets sin, murder begets murder. It all culminates in sorrow, misery, and death. That's the message that he's giving. This was a public display of wicked defiance. What David had done in secret, God was now going to expose in public through the disgusting rebellion of Absalom. 
Now clearly Absalom is committing sin in public, which shows his indiscretion and lack of concern for any piety whatsoever. And this is, however, it was not a, a, an act of lust, as it was with David. This is an act of wickedness. It's an act of a wicked conqueror, a violent, shameless usurper. Notice Adam Clark, what he says. It may be remembered that David left ten of them behind to take care of the house. Ahithophel advised his infernal measure in order to prevent the possibility of a reconciliation between David and his son. This was the prophecy to Nathan fulfilled. And this was probably, notice what he says, and this was probably transacted in the very same place where David's eye took the adulterous view of Bathsheba. The wives of the conquered king were always the property of the conqueror. And in pressing these, he appeared, Absalom appeared to possess the right to the kingdom. Every part of the conduct of Absalom shows him to have been a most profligate young man. He was proud, vindictive, adulterous, incestuous, a parasite, and a reprobate to every good word and work. End quote. So once this shameful act is completed, Ahithophel sets in motion a military campaign to hunt down David and to be rid of him once and for all. We shall consider that next when we return to our exposition of Second Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.